So um, we're going to um, get started on um, As I Lay Dying. And uh, as with The Sound of Fury, um, there's a very um, uh, kind of long genealogy uh, behind the title of the novel. Uh, once again, um, there's a very learned illusion uh, behind the title. And it doesn't go back to Macbeth this time. It goes back, actually goes back farther. It goes back to the Odyssey. Um, and you guys might remember that in book 11 of the Odyssey, um, Odysseus goes down to the underworld and he um, sees all the, he sees his mother, uh, but he also sees all the illustrious dead uh, from the Trojan War. And among the dead that he talks to is Agamemnon. And uh, we know that Agamemnon was killed when he got back from the Trojan War. Um, and so Odysseus wants to find out the circumstances of his death. And Agamemnon says, as I lay, well, <laughs> obviously translation, um, as I lay dying, the woman with the dog's eye would not close my eyes as I descended into Hades. Um, so it, um, there's no, um, that's, that's a very good uh, record within the epic. Um, it is also picked up in various Greek tragedies uh, because that's one of the central tragedies um, in, in the classical world is uh, the killing of Agamemnon uh, by his wife's lover. But there's a long story behind that, um, the reason that Clytemnestra, and I want you to remember that name because Clytemnestra will come up again um, in Light in August. That's a very, um, no, actually, sorry. It, she doesn't come up in, in Light in August. She comes up in another novel um, in uh, Epsilon, Epsilon. So it's a name that is very important to Faulkner. But uh, within the confines of uh, As I Lay Dying, uh, Clytemnestra actually didn't just want to kill her husband in order to have an affair with Aegisthus. She was actually seeking revenge for the killing of her daughter, Iphigenia, uh, when the, uh, the, the Greek um, ships were not able to sail because uh, there was a dead calm. And so Iphigenia was sacrificed by Agamemnon in order to get them going. Um, and she nursed that grievance for 10 years. Uh, and so when Agamemnon comes home, um, he was with his mistress, Cassandra, from Troy. Um, he was killed by Aegisthus with uh, Clytemnestra aching him on. So this is, the, in many ways, the sort of defining moment, the defining tragic moment in the classical world. Um, and there are numerous representations of that, um, of Aegisthus killing Agamemnon with Clytemnestra looking on. Um, and this is a really handy um, identification uh, illustration for us, uh, all the names given to us. So uh, Clytemnestra is there. Aegisthus is the one who actually does the killing, Agamemnon being killed. Electra is his daughter, and she will bring her brother back, uh, Aristus, to kill Aegisthus. So it really is back and forth killing um, across many generations. And Cassandra will in time, well, will actually right there uh, be killed by Clytemnestra. So lots of violence, uh, lots of hatred. And this is um, the defining feature of the House of Atreus. So it's very important um, for Faulkner to be uh, referring back um, to this ancient epic uh, moment 
um, because he's obviously talking about a family uh, with very complicated emotional relationships, right? It's a family that is not entirely um, defined by love. Um, you know, we would like families to be defined by love, but usually most families are a little bit more complicated than this. Um, and in this case, the house of the Bundrens, um, that the, the family um, is, is infinitely more complicated than just being defined by love, um, even though it, it's on the other end of the social spectrum. So um, let's keep that epic tradition in mind. But I also want to just to highlight um, the immediate chronology for the writing of As I Lay Dying. Um, it's a very, very packed chronology, basically for six months um, from the summer of 1929 to January 1930, um, less than six months really. Um, a lot of things happen. So June 20th, uh, Faulkner married his um, childhood uh, sweetheart, Estelle Autumn, um, and that was only two months after her divorce from her husband, Cornell Franklin. Um, very, you know, when something like that happens, you just wonder, you know, what the um, aftermath would be uh, or what led up to it. Um, so anyway, two months after, there was a very hasty marriage, uh, in many ways unseemly <laughs> marriage, um, and she brought to the marriage two children with uh, Cornell Franklin, Malcolm and Victoria. Um, then October 7th, 1929, the Sound of Fury was published, uh, and a few weeks after that was the stock market crash that in many ways was anticipated by the Jason section in The Sound of Fury. And the day after that, I mean, in fact, it was still going on because the 24th was a Thursday. So Friday was actually the official day of the stock market crash. On that very day, Faulkner started writing As I Lay Dying. So we can't think of a better um, novel occasion by the Great Depression um, to have and have not, as its title announces, um, it's very much a Great Depression novel, but as L, as L.A. Dying is as well, so we have to keep that in mind. Um, and it was finished uh, really fast um, in just a few weeks, January 12, 1930, uh, as L.A. Dying was finished. And Faulkner talks about it, he makes a very emphatic point about how fast this was done. Um, so in an interview with Marshall Smith, um, 1931, he said, got a job rolling coal in a power plant, found the sound of the dynamo very conducive to literature, wrote as I lay dying in a coal bunker beside the dynamo between working spells on the night shift finished it in six weeks. Never change a word. If I ever got rich, I'm going to buy a dynamo and put it in my house. I think that would make writing easier. So Deng Yenshik is always, you know, you should never trust a word that Faulkner says. Um, but I think that there's some things that are um, not to be disputed and not to be fabricated. Um, and that was the fact that he was working um, in a power plant working night shifts. So this is very different uh, from the Faulkner that we might have imagined just by looking at his house. Um, and I'm going to show you a picture of his house uh, a little later. But um, it, um, 
it, it looks like a very stately house, but actually when Faulkner first bought the house, um, it was decrepit and was deemed unfit for human habitation. Um, so he really um, was someone, a writer, who was writing his great novels when he was working at Powerpoint doing night shifts. Um, and that's the world that he knew very well. So his circumstances were actually not that far removed from the circumstances of the Bundren family, poor whites, obviously. Um, so this is a picture of the house um, 25 years after he bought it. Um, and we can see that it actually still looks a little decrepit. It's, very, it's a very stately shape. Uh, used to be a very grand house, um, but it's unpainted and, and actually um, not in very, you know, even 25 years after he started owning the house, it was not, still not repaired. Um, so basically he spent the rest of his life trying to fix up that house. What we also see there is his wife, Estelle, um, and it turned out it was a very good marriage in spite of the haze. Um, it lasted for the rest of his life. Um, and here's the picture of the two of them um, side by side. Um, and so it's kind of an unexpected uh, trajectory for that unseemly marriage uh, back in 1929. Um, and so that's the family situation and his probably very complicated relation to his two stepchildren, um, probably the, and what exactly what constitutes a family. Um, those questions would have been front and center for Faulkner um, in 1929 when he was writing this novel about families in general, about generic poor white family. Um, since the Depression was right there in the middle of all of this, I thought that I'll show you uh, a very iconic picture by Dorothy Lang, uh, migrant mother, uh, 1936. Um, this is an image that's reproduced over and over again as the defining image of the Great Depression. Um, and it actually is quite uh, different from the spirit in which As I Lay Dying uh, was written. So um, I think that this represents one way to think about the Great Depression. But actually, the way that Faulkner thinks about the Great Depression, I argue, is closer um, to another classic work about uh, the rural South, James Agee and Walker Evans' uh, collaboration um, is a text with lots of photographs. It's a collaboration between the two of them called Let Us Now Praise Fa Famous Man. And I'll just show you a few pictures, uh, Walker Evans' uh, pictures of uh, what it, how it feels to be a poor white um, in also the same year as that Dorothea Lang picture, 1936. Um, so, you know, this is a, a little later after Faulkner finished, had already finished as I lay dying. Uh, but this is the, what the house of a sharecropper uh, would have looked like. And I think um, the common estimate was that 80%, maybe more than 80% um, of uh, farm laborers in the South were sharecroppers. They didn't own the land. Um, so this is the interior of the house uh, of the poor whites. And another interior in the bedroom. Um, and I love this picture. It's Ellie Mae, um, beautiful face, very proud and very sad and very resigned, but not giving up. And that's exactly my image uh, of Ellie. Um, and that's um, poor white. So, anyway, um, that is the background to As I Lay Dying. Um, and I think that we just need to read, you know, about 
two pages, two or three pages uh, into the novel um, to see that this is another highly experimental novel experimenting um, in different points of views and um, this is really a dazzling array of narrators. Um, so in the first 18 chapters, these are the narrators um, and nobody, nobody has to keep track of them. Um, just pick the ones that you can remember. Uh, but they also tend to have um, very distinctive voices. They actually are very easily recognizable. So don't worry um, that, in fact, there's no danger that you'll get them mixed up. Um, so in order to um, talk about um, this very rich um, assemblage of, um, of, of points of views and styles of speaking um, and speaking voices, um, I thought I would introduce two other uh, critics or theorists uh, about the novel, about narrative in general, actually not just about the novel because uh, narrative goes much further back than, um, than the novel. So the epic, um, the Odyssey, uh, would be one kind of ancient narrative. Um, although Bakhtin, um, a very celebrated Russian theorist of the novel, um, doesn't like the epic all that much. He thinks the novel is really the greatest thing, replacing the epic. Um, but in any case, that's what he um, says about the novel and what makes the novel so great is that even though um, there's this illusion when you just see words on the page that everything seems unified, that the novel is actually a highly diversified genre with lots of internal fractures. And what generates those internal fractures um, is that there are multiple languages in the novel. That's what he says. The novel is made up of social dialects, characteristic group behavior, professional jargons, generic languages, languages of generations and age groups, tendentious languages, languages of the authorities, of various circles, and of passing fashions, serving to express authorial intentions, but in a refracted way. Um, so we all know that, that novels actually do register passing fashions very well, right? So um, a novel about uh, the Valley Girl would have to, would like, you know, the would like would be re repeated constantly. <laughs> it wouldn't be realistic if it weren't. Um, so that's the, is the nature of um, the novel, um, to, is to mimic current speech. Um, and so Bakhtin is, is very, very um, accurate in his description of the currency uh, and the way that the novel is always up to date on uh, the language that people um, are using, actual living people are using. Although novels can also choose to be historic novels, in which case they will be try to mimic the language of the 18th century or whatever, as Pynchon you know, sometimes does, um, and is a master uh, at doing that. Um, so, um, so Bakhtin is, is great in terms of um, talking about the social dimension of language. And I don't think that you guys need to be reminded that this is um, directly related to our discussion of social types, right, in Hemingway um, and in Fitzgerald. Um, so basically, this is the social dialects of various um, labelable uh, social groups. Um, but I think that as we read S.I. Dine, we can also see that there's something else going on other than social dialects that Bakhtin's theory actually is inadequate to describing the spectrum of linguistic phenomena in S.I.L.A. Dime. 
So to supplement Bakhtin, I would like to introduce one other critic, distinguished British critic, died in um, 2010, uh, Frank Kermode. And this is actually a book that he wrote earlier, um, quite early in his career, called The Genesis of Secrecy, The Interpretation of Narrative. Um, and Bakhtin's theory um, is that uh, that yes, we tend to interpret narratives when we're given a narrative. Uh, most of us attempted to interpret it in some fashion. But his argument is also that narratives themselves are interpretations of reality. So you know, the, when we actually try to interpret a narrative, we're actually doing a kind of meta interpretation in the sense that the narrative itself is an interpretation of, uh, of reality. And not only that, but that secrecy or secrets emerge in the course of that interpretation, which is a fascinating notion of how secrets are generated, not when we're trying to hide something from other people, but when we go about interpreting reality, that is when secrets become a reality, becomes a, when they become a recognizable uh, reality, maybe not legible, but uh, they become registered as a dimension of reality. So very, very interesting idea. And Camus basically um, is, is interested in the Bible. Um, that's his, his great reading of the Gospel of Mark, of St. Mark. Um, and, but he's also interested in narrative in general. So let's um, think about how his idea uh, would, um, could be um, incorporated or combined with Bakhtin's theory of social dialects uh, to think about the basic linguistic paradigm in As I Lay Dying. So what I'd like to suggest is that we can uh, very schematically uh, classify speech in As I Lay Dying um, under two headings. One is the social dialect, and it has to do with functionally coded mm -hmm. speech um, when you're within a particular group, uh, generic group, uh, because there's so much commonality among that group, quite often you would just use um, a shorthand. So, you know, for liberals, Sarah Palin would be one such shorthand, right? You don't need to say anything more. You just re reference Sarah Palin, and that's that's enough. So that's one example of a currently functionally coded speech. Uh, it obviously is a dialect of group. It's not representative of the entire population, um, and. Uh, because it is so intimately formative of that subgroup, um, it, the, the very use of language can function as a socioeconomic and psychological portrait of that subset of the population. So this is very, all, which, all those concepts are very important to Bakhtin, that the population is made up of various subsets and their lines of division among those subsets based on the linguistic usage. So this is the social dimension, and we'll think, obviously, about how poor whites would use the English language. Um, but um, almost from the very beginning, we also see that the English language is used in a different way in SLA Dime. So those are the words with secrets, and it's very, very hard not to read SLA Dime without um, sensing that those words are pregnant with meaning. Uh, quite often, we deny access uh, to those meanings. Um, they sort of flaunt, you know, they taunt us with uh, meaning that is not uh, available to us. 
uh, and, and that's part of the attraction and power of those words. So I would like to think about those words with secrets um, along two lines. One is relatively short term and relatively uh, transparent in the sense that we can get to them um, sooner or later. And the other um, would be long running words with secrets um, that are very resistant to our investigation. Words that hold on to the secrets for a long time and maybe never giving up the secret, never yielding anything to the reader. Um, so let's start with the easier part uh, of the spectrum, uh, which is uh, very recognizable speech. Um, and I'm taking both those examples from Cora, who is, um, I, I think it's fair to say, is a fairly good example of a poor white. Um, so I saved out the eggs and baked yesterday. The cakes turned out real well. We depend a lot on our chickens. They're good layers. What few we have left after the possums and such. Snakes too in the summer. I had to be more careful than ever because it was on my final say-so we took them. We could have stocked cheaper chickens, but I gave my promise. And as Miss Lowington said when she advised me to get a good breed because Mr. Tao himself admits that a good breed of cows or hogs pays in the long run. So when we lost so many of them, we couldn't afford to use the eggs ourselves because I could not have had Mr. Tao chive me when it was on my say-so. We took them. So a very proud woman, um, but obviously under very difficult circumstances, these are the people who cannot afford to eat the eggs laid by their own chickens. Um, and um, it's because they lose so many chickens um, and just from the possums and the snakes. And because those chickens are so expensive, um, they, losing one means a lot to them. So all of that would seem to be chorus responsibility. And I think that this is really um, Faulkner's basic portrait of the poor wise, um, very, very proud people in spite of the poverty, um, f with lots of moral rectitude um, in the sense that they're willing to take all responsibility upon themselves without recognizing that actually someone else should also be held responsible. The person who advises them to buy all these expensive chickens, which turns out to be very, very bad advice, but not a word of complaint from Cora. So what we can say about this world is that this is a world in which moral responsibility is tightly encapsulated within the compass of the speaking voice. That there's a basic coincidence between the boundaries of the self and the circumference of accountability so that you are completely responsible, accountable, answerable to anything that happens to you. It is truly unfortunate that your chickens get taken by the possums and snakes, but it is your responsibility. Um, so Miss Lowington is referenced, is alluded to, but no blame is attached to her. And I would say this is really the defining feature, according to Faulkner, um, of the mentality of the poor whites. And we can see one other instance of that. Um, so I bait carefully, Cora has been told by Ms. Lowington again to do something. So I bait carefully, more careful than ever, I bait in my life. 
and the cakes turned out right well. But when we got to town this morning, Miss Lowington told me the lady had changed her mind and was not going to have the party after all. She ought to have taken those cakes anyway, Kate said. Well, I say, I reckon she never had no use for them now. She ought to have taken them, Kate says. But those rich town ladies can change their minds. Poor folks can't. Riches is nothing in the face of the Lord, for he can see into the heart. Maybe I can sell them at a bazaar Saturday, I said. They turn out real well. Um, once again, the same mentality that we, that we saw just in the earlier passage, uh, the full encapsulation of responsibility within the compass of a single person. Um, and that couple with uh, a certain kind of um, psychologically redeeming piety uh, that even though something is befalling, unfortunate is befalling me right now, that God is the ultimate judge of everything. And once again, there's the deep reluctance to extend the blame to anyone else, either Miss Lowington or the rich town lady who changes her mind about the cakes. Um, so um, this is a, um, I would say, a very sympathetic, um, although obviously critical, both sympathetic and critical portrait uh, of the poor white. And uh, it basically is the baseline. Is the, that is the given, uh, linguistic given, psychological given, social given in the world of SLA dying. Um, and just about everything else that we see in the rest of the novel is a departure, is a deviation from that given. So Cora is the starting point, and everyone else uh, moves away a bit from that starting point. And we can measure the degree of deviation or maybe the degree of deviance, um, because as I lay down, it's also about deviance and the consequences of deviance at the end of the novel that we see. Um, but this is a very important uh, starting point for Faulkner. So let's look at the various points of departure and modes of departure from that linguistic baseline. And I'll move on now to talk about uh, the various kinds of words with secrets. Um, one is very short term, and I think that you guys know what I'm talking about, Dewey Dale's secret. Um, and then the long running secret in the Bundren family coming to us from Dao. And actually, I've added one other, Vardaman. Um, so um, let's look at the short-term secret, do you there? Um, uh, and she's picking cotton with Leif, right? So, um, and she's decided in her own mind that if her bag is full, then she would do something. Um, so the decision is hinging strictly on whether or not the bag is full. And it turns out that Leif is in picking into her bag. So it was full when we came to the end of the row, and I could not help it. And so it was, I could not help it. It was then, and then, I saw Dow, and he knew. He said he knew without the words, like he told me, that Ma is going to die without words. And I knew he knew, because if he had said he knew with the words, I would not have believed that he had seen there that he had been there and saw us. But he said he did know, and I said, are you going to tell Pa you're going to kill him without the words? I said it. And he said, why? Without the words. And that's why I can talk to him with knowing, with hating, because he knows. 
So this is the first indication that the Bundren family might have something in common with the house of Atreus, is the importance of the word hate in that family. Um, and it seems that hate, hatred can come about because someone knows something about you. And all of that, all of this very intense exchange is conducted without words. So in many ways, this is, you know, Faulkner obviously is not responding uh, to Bakhtin. He wouldn't have been thinking about Bakhtin. Um, but he's obviously thinking of a dimension of language um, that is not covered, that is not encompassed by social dialect. And in fact, it's not encompassed by actual, actually spoken words, although in order to tell us that those emotions are going through Dewey Dale, Faulkner has to use words to convey that, 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 that um, experience to us. Um, so Faulkner is using words, but Dewey Dale is not using words, and Dow is not using words either. And we know exactly what it is that, that Dow knows, you know, that, that, um, that Dewey Dale is in fact going to town, you know, because she's in such a condition um, that she needs to do something about herself. Um, and it all comes from uh, Leif picking the cotton into her bag, and what happens when the bag is full. Um, so it really is a pretty transparent secret. Um, and um, you know, I think that all of us are in the know, uh, almost right there. Um, there are not that many secrets um, that a young girl in her circumstances uh, could have. So this is almost the only secret that she could have, and she does have it. Um, so um, that in itself is surprising. It's not surprising that she would get pregnant out of wedlock. That's not surprising. Um, it is surprising that she would hate Dao so much because of that. So let's turn now to the more deep-seated, deep-rooted uh, kind of secret um, that is not always disclosed to us um, as the words are spoken, uh, maybe not disclosed to us as the narrative unfolds, and maybe never disclosed to us ever. So um, Dao, it turns out, um, as, in fact, as soon as the novel opens, this is the opening paragraph of SLA Dying. Right there, in this very neutral-looking um, statement from Dao, this little secret, Joe and I come up from the field following the path in single file. Although I am 15 feet ahead of him, anyone watching us from the cotton house can see Joe's frayed and broken straw hat a full head above my own. So it seems a, a kind of odd kind of emphasis on the spatial orientation of the Bundren house, the cotton house, and what anyone in the cotton house would be able to see, and the difference in height between Dao and Jewel. Well, difference in height, you know, is not probably not the most significant thing in the world for most people. Uh, but within the family, difference in height, actually, is kind of interesting and potentially significant. Um, so let's just keep that in mind, that this, uh, what seems to be a kind of a telling difference in height between Dao and Jew, and just leave that secret right there, because Dao is not, maybe Dao doesn't even know himself. Uh, but he's certainly the carrier of a secret 
that is revealed, that is sort of given to us or flung at us, um, you know, that we are just meant to receive this thing that we don't fully understand at this moment. Um, uh, but this passage is uh, in many ways deceptive in the sense that there's not any complicated language and there's nothing that we obviously don't understand um, about, the, about it. So I would still classify this as being fairly close to the Dewey Dell kind of secret. It is long running, relatively long running, but it potentially could have the same kind of transparency as Dewey Dell's secret. But let's look at um, something else where the language itself uh, becomes very different. And this is coming from Joe himself, and I really don't actually think I can read this very well, so I will try. Uh, but Faulkner certainly is not making it easy for anyone who tries to read this. If it had just been me when Cash fell off of that church, and if it had just been me when Pa picked late sick with that load of wood fell on him, it would not be happening with every bastard in the country coming in to stare at her, because if there is a God, what the hell is he for? It would just be me and her on a high hill, and me rolling the rocks down the hill at the faces, picking them up and throwing them down the hill, faces and teeth, and all by God, until she was quiet, and not that goddamn F going one leg less, one leg less, and we could be quiet. Um, I truly don't know what to say about this passage, other than that there's a lot of hatred in there, just like Dewey Dale's passage. Um, and it seems that for some reason, hatred is the most powerful bond in this family. Um, and Joe seems, at least, you know, one conjecture that we could have about this passage um, is that he wants to throw stones down the hill at someone. Um, and it appears that he wants to throw stones at the rest of his family. Um, and we have no reason to understand. It's not just that we are not good enough readers that we don't understand. We actually have no reason to understand what's going on here um, because Faulkner does not want us to understand at this point. So all we know is that Jewel is furious about something. He is furious that Cash is making a coffin um, for Eddie for some reason, and he can't stand that as going one leg less. That is the sound that he can't stand. Um, as well as the fact that Eddie is on full display for the entire neighborhood to come and look at her uh, when Cash is trying to get that coffin ready. So these are the immediate circumstances that he really hates, um, that she is um, in disgrace because everyone, every bastard in the country can come in and look at her when she's waiting for her coffin. Um, and that Cash seems to be taking his time making that coffin, but not maliciously, we would think, because he's a very good carpenter and he wants to be thorough in making a very good coffin. Um, but, um, but for some reason, Jules' hatred also extends to his father. And if it had been him when that load of wood fell, uh, on him, that would have been good too. So it, it, it's just really, um, it's, it's, it's very peculiar. Uh, we don't know uh, the long history, the long emotional history um, behind all these people. They obviously are a very close-knit family uh, because there's so few people around. 
that there's just not enough distance separating them. They're really basically all stuck in the same place. Um, and that creates um, a kind of a, a, the, the ideal condition um, to maximize any kind of hostility uh, among the family members. Um, that seems to be one of the consequences um, of uh, poor whites in a very small town uh, with very few neighbors. Um, so um, it seems at the very least that Jew, as he imagines himself, or as he experiences himself in relation to the rest of his family, that he sees himself very much as an outsider. Okay, so Jew sees himself as an outsider, that he would like to do something. He would like to throw stones at the rest of his family. Uh, and combine that with the fact that um, Dao seems to be really uh, fixated on that otherwise innocent fact that Jill is um, a whole head taller than he is, um, that those two seem linked in some fashion. There's kind of a very um, deep-seated uh, and violent and always um, explosive kind of hatred coming from Jill um, and the neutral observation from Dao. Um, that those two they are uh, the pieces of some kind of jigsaw puzzle that we have to figure out uh, in the course of SLA dying. So let me just um, give one more addition uh, to that kind of configuration uh, based on what seems to be unmotivated or unaccounted for hatred. Um, the hatred is undeniable. The violence is undeniable. Um, it's just that we're not able to read them very well. So Frank Camus is actually right that this is a narrative that in the course of making us, compelling us to come up with interpretations is also generating secrets in that very act. That the fact that we have to interpret the words that are given to us also generates secrets about the Bundren family. Well, here's Dewey Dale back again. Um, and we know that she's already uh, been the carrier of one kind of secret about herself. Um, that seems pretty transparent. Uh, but this is, seems to be a secret of a somewhat different order. And Jewel don't care about anything. He is not kin to us in caring, not care kin. And Cash, like sawing the long, hot, yellow days up into plants, nailing them to something. And I did not think that Dao would, that sits at the supper table with his eyes gone further than the food and the lamb, full of the land, dug out his skull and the holes filled with distance beyond the land. Um, I think this is actually Faulkner's belated attempt to write what he doesn't write in The Sound of Fury, which is the portrait of three brothers told from the standpoint of the sister. Um, Dewey, though, is nothing like Caddy, but it's almost as if Faulkner is showing us that, yes, he can certainly capture a uh, young girl's point of view, and maybe this is what comes out. So not exactly flattering or uh, very, uh, 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 it's a very intimate portrait of the three brothers. Um, but it's not one that they would especially like to see or hear about. Um, so 
something about Jewel um, seems to be emerging just in accordance with what Dao is saying, what Jewel himself is saying, and what Dao Dao is saying, that there's, it's a common pattern. Uh, the Jew is not kin to us, he's not care kin, he doesn't care for the rest of us. Um, his interests seem to lie somewhere else. Um, so that, that, that fact is, is, um, you know, is, is fairly straightforward. Um, the little bit of observation about Cash is interesting. Um, we know that Cash is a good carpenter, and Faulkner really wants to highlight that fact. That basically he's the one who brings in money to the family. Um, he's the one who's always hired by other people. He's the only one who's capable of bringing in real income into a family. Um, and he really wants to make a good coffin for Addie. So um, all that is not in dispute. But the way in which Julie Dell looks at Dell, that he's sawing up the long, hot, set yellow days into planks suggests that maybe there's a kind of a metaphoric and psychological dimension to carpentry as well. That even though he, Dao is a very skilled laborer, there's also something very skilled workman. He's more than just a laborer. He's actually he's an artisan. He's a very skilled artisan. There is something about uh, that act of very methodically sawing the wood that says something about the mindset of cash. And so that is what Dewey Dow is noticing, um, that as if, uh, even though, no matter how good an artisan he is, uh, there's something maybe just a little disturbing or worrisome uh, about the fact that he's so much into carpentry. And then her portrait of Dow is um, Truly, um, I don't know what to make of that. Um, it is very surprising coming from Dewey Dell, um, who so far has not been a very deep thinker or any, someone with very deep emotions, actually. Um, you know, she's worried about something very immediate and very simple, really. Um, but this portrait of Dow that, um, that his um, eyes are gone further than the food and the lamb, he's not, obviously, not just registering the food and the lamb. This is a different degree of depth between what his eyes register um, and the quite service phenomenon of the food and the lamb. So there's a difference um, in, 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 in just the radius of, of uh, perception uh, between what Tao is registering um, and the most immediate physical world of food and lamb. Um, and I think that it's because of that difference in the radius of perception um, that the whole land seems to be embedded in his skull or dug out of the skull and then um, their holes filled with distance that in some sense the vastness, uh, both the vastness of the land, uh, the enormous distance but also the holes, the gaps in that distance, all of those are packed into Dao's skull. Um, I mean I'm just paraphrasing Faulkner, not really elucidating that passage um, and I think that that's all we can do at this moment. If there's something special about Dao, uh, that he's not so easily describable in everyday language. So this is almost a direct refutation of Bakhtin, that social dialect quite often cannot capture uh, the psychological reality, even of what appears to be the most simple, you know, deprived um, person, um, disadvantaged person. Um, so I want to um, give you one more example uh, of uh, of, of uh, a specimen, linguistic specimen, 
um, and specimen isn't the right word. <laughs> specimen is, would have been the right word for Hemingway, would have been the right word for, um, for Fitzgerald in the short stories, but it's strictly ironic in this sense, um, but I'll use that word anyway. So this, this one instance of language that is also com completely incomprehensible to us coming from a child from Vardaman. It is dark, I can hear wood silence, I know them, but not living sounds not even him. It is as though the dark were resolving him out of his integrity into an unrelated scattering of components, snuffings and stampings, smells of cooling flesh, and ammoniac hair, an illusion of a coordinated whole of splotch high and strong bones within which detached and secret and familiar and is different from my is. I see him dissolve, legs, a rolling eye, a gaudy splotching like cold flames, and float upon the dark in fading solution. All one yet neither, all either yet none. I can see hearing coil toward him, caressing, shaping his heart shape, fetlock, hip, shoulder, and head, smell and song. I am not afraid. This comes right after two very dramatic moments. The chapter before the Vardaman chapter um, is when we know that Eddie is dead, that Eddie Bundren is dead. That is announced to us, that's the very end of that chapter. And then the chapter that is Vardaman's chapter right after that is when he actually um, goes into Peabody's bond, the bond of the neighbor, um, and uses a stick to beat on the horses so that they all run away. And most of the, um, that chapter is devoted to Vardaman uh, beating on the horses and saying um, that they, not even the day, but that you killed my mom. Uh, so uh, that in itself is kind of, you know, sort of understandable, but strange in that he would pin, unlike Cora, who would pin the responsibility on herself. Vardaman pins the responsibility for killing Eddie on it appears on Peabody, um, and that's why he's beating on his horses uh, and, and in fact, uh, you know, just destroying the whole team. Uh, the, the horses run away. Um, and then after the Peabody's horses run away, Vardaman seems to be preoccupied with something else. And this is a moment where Faulkner really is having a great time with his pronouns. Uh, you know, who is this he? Okay, I think there are at least two candidates. I think it possibly is his Jules horse, you know, this horse that doesn't run away. And there's something about the snuffings and stampings and the splotch height that suggests that it is the horse um, that, that, that Vardaman is talking about. This is the one thing that's remaining, um, this horse that doesn't run away. But there's also a possibility um, that an is different from my is. Uh, just because of the syntactical construction of that sentence suggests that it, probably, it might not be an animal, but a human being. Um, a human being whose is is different from Vardaman's is, in which case that human being could only be Jewel. Right? So I think that this passage is meant to be deliberately misleading in the sense that we can't tell exactly where Jewel begins and where his horse where Jewel ends and where his horse begins, um, the boundaries between the human being 
um, and the holes um, are not so clear cut. And in fact, the identities of the two uh, seem to be interfused. Uh, and that is one of the great innovations in SLA-Dine, um, those uh, very ambiguous uh, and uncertain boundaries between the human and the non-human, uh, which actually is also one of the great defining attributes of the classical <coughs> epic tradition. Um, so we'll come back to this and talk about the uncertain boundaries uh, between human and non-human, both by going back to Homer and Dante and so on, but talking about the implications in SLA dying.